Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Show podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I spoke with Jason Kenney, leader of the United Conservative Party of Alberta, as the Alberta provincial election is underway. You're going to be hearing that, as well as the former director of policy for Stephen Harper. When uh, Mr. Harper was the prime minister of Canada, Rachel Curran spoke with me about the current Liberal government and what's going on within the Liberal Party. You're going to be hearing that as well as Scott Taylor, former soldier, founder and publisher of Esprit de Corps magazine, the Canadian military magazine founded in 1988. And uh, Scott Taylor has a great story, a very important story about what's being done to Admiral Mark Norman. You'll want to hear that as well. There's a very engaging and sometimes splitting families debate taking place across Canada, and it has to do with high school graduates about where they're going to go, university or trade school. We're going to be hearing from the University of Saskatchewan, Professor Ken Coates, and Catherine Swift, former head of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, whose son made a decision. You'll want to hear that. What about the Liberal Party of Canada? What's going on inside the Liberal Party? I spoke with two former Liberal MPs, Dan McTague and Michelle Simpson. You're going to hear that and a lot more on the podcast. As we've been talking about, and as you well know, and has has been anticipated and as has been waited for for some significant period of time, the election campaign in Alberta is underway. And on an April 16th, Albertans will decide who's going to lead the province for the next four years. And according to polling, the uh, favorite to occupy the position of premier is Jason Kenney. He's the leader of the UCP of Alberta and a former federal cabinet minister and uh, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. How are you, Jason? Very good, Roy. Great to be back on your show. Well, good to have you with us. Um, let, me, let me start with this. As you, uh, as things have developed in the province over the last two years, and uh, we've been very closely watching the economic hardships, the transfer payments issue, the emotions of Albertans. I've heard it on this program on a weekly basis. What are the most significant issues that you need to deal with as far as Albertans are concerned? And what's the one significant change, most significant change you would make if you become premier of the province? Most significant issues, jobs, the economy, pipelines. Most significant change, scrapping the carbon tax. Let's talk pipelines. How do you manage to make a significant and positive change in that regard when you have a federal government that's still in power that is obviously not interested in pipelines, when you have a Quebec government that clearly has no use for Alberta's so-called dirty oil, but they like the transfer payments a great deal, what can you do to initiate some significant developments, positive developments, as far as pipeline construction is concerned? By the way, where do you still live in the eastern townships? No, I left there. I'm okay. back in Ontario. Well, I'm sure you'll agree with me that the majority of Quebecers don't feel the same way as some of their politicians. They'd rather buy Alberta than Saudi or, for that matter, U.S. oil. But to answer your question, uh, I proposed a comprehensive fight-back strategy We've allowed foreign-funded special interests to infect our politics with the strategy of landlocking Canadian energy. They helped to elect the Trudeau Liberals, who cancelled the Northern Gateway pipeline that had been approved, killed Energy East through new regs, 
uh, surrendered to Obama's veto on Keystone XL and has basically surrendered to a campaign of obstruction by the B.C. New Democrats on the Trans Mountain expansion. Now they have the No More Pipelines law, Bill C-69, they're trying to ram through, and the tanker ban, C-48, plus the federal carbon tax and everything else. So what I say is we need to uh, stop apologizing. Our Premier, Rachel Motley, shortly after taking office, went on TV and said that Alberta was, quote, the embarrassing cousin that no one wants to talk about. She, what made her embarrassed to be an Albertan? Our energy industry. We need leadership that's never embarrassed to be the province that, is, that produces energy at the highest environmental human rights and labor standards on Earth, um, and that has shared hundreds of billions of dollars of our wealth to help our fellow Canadians across the country. So my strategy involves creating a well-funded war room in the government that will respond in real time to the campaign of lies about our uh, energy industry, doing so through paid, earned, and social media. I will use the power of the Premier's bully pulpit to carry that message across the country and around the world, y compris en français au Québec, and because I speak French, we'll make uh, uh, partnerships with like-minded provincial governments, Ontario, New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Northwest Territories, are all uh, managed... And that list is growing. That list is growing. It is. I'm working with opposition leaders in other provinces. I hope that in a few months, if I'm Premier, I'll be sitting around a table where the majority of the premiers strongly support our energy industry. Next, we'll make key stra- uh, alliances with First Nations, helping to get them into court to speak up for their their right to be consulted on the opportunity to move from poverty to prosperity through uh, participation in resource projects. Then I'll tell global multinationals like the HSBC Bank that's boycotting Alberta's energy industry while financing Putin's, I'll say, if you boycott Alberta, we'll boycott you. Then we're going to challenge the charitable status of groups like the David Suzuki Foundation and Tides Canada that have been funneling foreign money into the anti-Canadian energy campaign. I'll go to the CR Revenue Agency and to the federal court, if necessary, to challenge their their charitable status. Um, We will uh, ask the energy companies to up their game in terms of advocating for the industry and ultimately (laughs) we'll make it clear to other provinces like uh, the New Democrats in in B.C. if they block our energy, there will be consequences. I'm prepared to use the turn off the taps legislation. And finally, I'm prepared to hold a referendum on equalization in the Canadian Constitution amongst Albertans to take a page out of Quebec's playbook and elevate our fight for fairness to the top of the national agenda. I spoke with a representative of the Montreal Economic Institute some months ago, and this was after the Leger poll that you referenced, where 66% of Quebecers were said that they prefer Alberta oil over any other oil that comes into the country or into the province, and that includes all the stuff that's imported, 850,000 barrels a day or 800,000 barrels a day from uh, from other countries. Quebecers prefer Alberta oil. Quebecers also listed the pipelines as their number one preferred methodology to move oil and oil product. Pipelines, number one. Rail was way down on the list. The the, the Quebec government doesn't represent the will and the, and, and the mood and the attitude and the expectations of the people of Quebec when it comes to pipelines and moving the the oil product. It's so critically important to everybody in this country, but I'm just hearing from Alberta a pushback that I haven't heard before. And and you do have that, that, um, I call it a firewall of premiers, that is growing. But now what I hear you saying is there's going to be a battle with the federal government if this government stays in place. If not, maybe not so much. But you're ready to go to war with them over this. Uh, I think, Roy... Because that's what it would be. It would be a political war, Jason. Uh, 
we have to absolutely move from being defensive to assertive, from apologizing to fighting. And so it, it absolutely will be a fight. Um, and, you know, Roy, I think one of the reasons that the foreign-funded special interests have been so effective at landlocking Alberta and Canadian energy is precisely because we as Canadians are so nice. We're too nice. Agreed. We apologize too quickly. And they saw in that a sign of weakness, which they exploited. Um, I'll tell you, there's a reason why the same groups uh, don't attack the Venezuelan, Russian, Saudi, or Iranian energy industries. First of all, they'd be thrown in in jail or thrown out of those countries in a New York minute if they tried to protest there. So we've invited, uh, 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 the the weakness that we've shown has created the situation where these groups have ganged up on on Canada and and Alberta in particular. So it's time to fight. This is, we have the um, third largest energy, energy reserves in the world, a current market value of $16 trillion. That is the ability to pay for future pensions and healthcare, education and roads, mm-hmm. our quality of life. And they're trying to shut it down. We won't let them. Now, as far as the campaign is concerned, um, Premier Notley and the NDP are attacking you personally. Uh, you engineered yeah. your own UCP leadership win by working with a kamikaze candidate. We've all heard that. You're anti-gay. <laughs> they're portraying you as cruel, ambitious and nasty, a man who can't be trusted to govern Alberta. Did you react to that at all? Do you ignore personal attack? What do you do? Yeah, I pretty much ignore it. Uh, every time I hear it, you know, it reminds me of what Margaret Thatcher once said. When to attack me uh, personally, it makes me very happy because I realize they've run out of any other arguments. That's how I feel. Every time I hear them engaged in uh, U.S.-style attack politics, fear and smear, uh, it makes me realize they, they are desperate to talk about anything about except for jobs, the economy, and pipelines, the issues that people care most about. So I don't get uh, discouraged or distracted by it. We don't respond in kind either, Roy. This is the uh, kind of irony here. I have gone through three years trying to build a common sense, a free enterprise alternative to the NDP without ever once having engaged in a personal attack on our premier. We're not running attack ads. We're talking about issues. Obviously, we disagree with the NDP on on economic policy, on their carbon tax, on on their alliance with Justin Trudeau. But we're not going to sling mud. So I think they're going to be negatively judged by Albertans who want a respectful grown-up debate about how to get our economy back to work. All right, let's, let's, let me just, let me just ask you about this, the issue of the kamikaze candidate. Would you address that for us, please? So, yeah, there, there was, uh, this is coming from um, one of the people who ran in our party's leadership, uh, a guy named Jeff Calloway, who ultimately endorsed me. And there were there was a supporter of his who told who used that word, saying that it was the the camp that that's how she characterized the campaign. Um, all I know is uh, I met Jeff Calloway uh, very early in the process. This would have been the summer of 2017 to seek his support and his endorsement. He told me he was thinking of running himself. He had some ideas he wanted to talk about. He also wanted to be critical of of one of my opponents, Brian Jean. I said, look, I'd rather you just endorse me, but I'll respect your decision. And that's about it. Our campaigns had some political communication after that, which is totally normal. Uh, But um, we had nothing to do with the actual organization or funding of his campaign. It was his decision. Okay, one more question for you. Is the Canadian Federation in trouble? Now, I've spoken to Premiers Moe and Higgs about that. Premier Moe 
on my program, um, ask the question, do we have a country? And that's after the NDP premier of uh, British Columbia, Premier Horgan, uh, shut down the or successfully opposed the construction of the Trans Mountain Extension. And then Premier Higgs, after his first attending, the first minister's um, conference meeting, uh, talked about fractures in the Canadian Federation. And he said, we have to, quoting him here, we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or an ocean. And we have an Angus Reid poll showing 50% of Albertans on the side of separation from Canada. That's a big number. Even in emotional times, that's a big number. All right, is our federation in trouble? Yeah, yes, it is, Roy. In fact, support for separation in Alberta is now much higher than it is in Quebec. Uh, it, it's shocking. We just read that poll from Angus Reid. 50% of Albertans saying that they would support That's a secession. huge number. Is, it is, it is uh, deeply, deeply concerning. It's higher than it was. Uh, the support for separation higher than it was during Pierre Trudeau's national energy program. So that's why yesterday, Roy, I outlined that a united Conservative government will fight for a fair deal for Alberta, for equalization reform, for fairness in something called the Fiscal Stabilization Fund, to bring our tax dollars back home by converting the health and social transfers that Ottawa sends out to, to tax points where we would collect and keep the money ourselves, stopping the Trudeau uh, Notley increase in CPP premiums, getting fairness and employment insurance for Alberta, because we pay into it way more than we ever get back, exempting Alberta from the Canada Housing Mortgage Corporation stress test, which is making it harder for Albertans to buy homes, fighting for a corridors coalition to to get to pre-approved corridors uh, for, for pipelines and, and resource projects, fighting for a charter of economic rights for full, tree, full free trade and economic mobility and regulatory harmonization and other ideas. So I'm not just talking about frustration. The Premier is sticking her hand, head in the sand. This frustration, by the way, was created under the Trudeau-Notley alliance. So I say let's end that alliance at the polls, but let's have a concrete plan for a fair deal in the Federation. That's what we're running on. Thanks for the time. Good to talk to you again. Thanks, Roy. Jason Kenney, leader of the United Conservative Party from Alberta. Rachel Curran joins me. She's the former director of policy for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And uh, Ms. Curran, thank you very much for, for the time. I'll just start with you on this. The last thing I mentioned, when you have Judy Scrow, and I would imagine Ms. Scrow is doing what the party wants her to do. She's telling the CBC it's time for uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott to put up or shut up. And, uh, and, and what's, your, what's your response to that? What's going on inside that party, do you think? Yeah, well, thanks for the invitation, Roy. It's great to be here. Um, look, I think it's pretty distasteful to see Justin Trudeau release the attack dogs on these two women, right? They they are women of, whether you, you know, agree with their policy positions or not, uh, they are women of considerable experience, considerable integrity, and they are asking for a chance to tell the full story. Now, Trudeau has done everything in his power to, to shut that down, uh, including blocking additional testimony of the Justice Committee, voting against a motion that would extend the waiver, a uh, very limited waiver he granted for Jody Wilson-Raybould to, to speak. Uh, and so it's a bit rich now for him to send out his proxies to say, well, why don't they just speak up? Well, the reason they're not just speaking up is because he won't allow them to. They are subject to cabinet confidentiality, 
they're subject to solicitor-client privilege, and they can't just go out there and tell their stories. How often does it happen that there's a real communication breakdown or an intended communication breakdown or, or a, you can use the word uh, bullying, I suppose, going on inside a political party where someone says, this is what you're going to do, you're going to do it, how I tell you to do it, and when I tell you to do it, which appears to be what happened to Jody Wilson-Raybould. Yeah, well, I mean, there, look, there are always discussions within caucus and within cabinet on difficult issues. Those are normal. Um, what you don't do is direct the attorney general when it comes to a criminal prosecution. That's quite a different matter. So that's really the crux of the problem here. Not that there were discussions about political issues between the PMO and a cabinet minister or within caucus because those happen all the time, but because they related to a criminal prosecution. You cannot have political actors, for obvious reasons, deciding who gets criminally prosecuted and who doesn't. That's a clear red line. Let me ask you about the budget. So uh, we have the 2019 election budget. What are you, uh, what are you taking out of that? So, look, good news for the Liberals. I think it's a politically astute budget. It rolls out a whole bunch of new spending initiatives for their key voter groups whether that's students or seniors or workers. Um, you know, they've got like, a, like a, a little tidbit in there for everyone. The problem, as I see it, is that it pays. There's no plan in there for economic growth uh, for Canada's longer-term prosperity. So for the first time in this budget, we saw growth figures for the projected period 2018 to 23, 2023 that were under 2%. That's pretty alarming. That's not going to allow us to sustain our quality of life. It's not going to allow us to pay for all of the benefit programs that we rely on. So where's the plan in here for economic growth? Where's the the plan to secure our, our quality of life? It's just not in there. There's a bunch of new social spending. There's almost no economic plan. Well, you were uh, you were in charge of uh, the the logistics for the or the, the budget itself on, in the Stephen Harper uh, years. Um, this 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 clearly is a, a budget that's intended to go through to October the twenty first, and then after that, if they win, look out. Yeah, like this is clearly a campaign budget, right? This is the document on which they're going to campaign. Uh, and look, and with the Harper government in 2015, we did the same thing. Our budget 2015 was our campaign document. Of course, it was primarily an economic plan. It was a plan for Canada's growth and long-term prosperity. This plan is just a bunch of goodies for voters. Uh, it's very, like I call it um, a budget by focus group. So they've clearly gone out and said, you know, what are you worried about? What are you worried about? Here's something for you. Here's something for you. Here's something for you. So it's very short term. Uh, it's focused entirely on political benefit, and it's intended to be a campaign document. I asked a friend of mine who's very active politically and doesn't want me to mention his name. I asked him, what would you do if you were a senior member of the Liberal Party now with a, and, and your advice was going to be necessary for the Prime Minister of Canada, Mr. Trudeau? What would you do? He said, I'd quit. But, <laughs> but, but that, that's why he doesn't want me to mention his name. But what do you, how do you see this whole issue playing itself out? Because it's nowhere near being done. No, I think there's a lot more still to come out. So, look, I think if nothing new came out, um, if, you know, everything that there was to hear we'd already heard, uh, Trudeau would have a pretty good chance of surviving this. He's, he's hanging on with his fingernails uh, and, and kind of riding this out. Um, the problem is, though, as you've said, there is much more to be told, and Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott are clearly bound and determined to, to tell it. I don't think they're going anywhere fast. The other issue is that at some point the RCMP may get interested in this. 
there's certainly enough evidence out there now to for you know to potentially uh, provide a prima facie case of obstruction of justice. So if they announce, look, we're going to look into this, see whether the evidence warrants charges, I think that's game over for Trudeau. So how is this going to play out? Look, we'll see what new information comes out. We'll see if it meets the threshold. But Trudeau is awfully close to having to step down. And uh, well, I, I think I think you're absolutely correct. And uh, what whatever the letter is that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould sends to the Justice Committee members of the Justice Committee, that's going to be key as well. And I just don't see any quit in her, uh, nor in uh, Jane Philpot. And it didn't help when Celine uh, Cesar Chavan decided to uh, go and sit as an independent. And it, it's almost hard to believe that it was just a week ago that uh, Michael Wernick quit. It seems like so long ago now. I, well, it's like you. you walk away for an hour and something new happens, right? Something new and shocking happens uh, in this latest scandal. But you're right, this steady drip, drip of bad news, and none of these things are small. They're all they're all big blows. Uh, to have something new happening every day, every couple of days, uh, is really, really damaging to the government. Yep. And Trudeau's doing everything he can to shut that down. I'm not sure it's going to be enough. Ms. Curran, thank you for the time. Good talking to you. Thanks, Roy. Bye-bye. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Here's a little bit of Here We Go Again, another case of a Canadian corporation pushing the Trudeau government into making a decision favorable to the corporation. Is that what's going on? The dubious criminal case against Canadian Vice Admiral Mark Norman, charged with breach of trust for the alleged leaking of information to Davy Shipbuilding of Quebec, that Irving Shipbuilding of Halifax, in the early days of the Justin Trudeau government, was attempting to overturn a contract Davy had signed with the federal government of Stephen Harper to convert a commercial ship into a much-needed Navy supply ship. Well, Irving denies any such alleged involvement. Admiral Norman is denied payment of his legal expenses by Ottawa because he was considered guilty, according to a leaked Justice Department letter, this, of course, before the admiral was even charged with any offense. They decided he was guilty. Documents required by his lawyer, Marie Hannon, are so slowly being made available by Ottawa that Hannon is threatening to call Gerald Butts and Michael Wernick to testify in open court when the admiral's trial begins, likely in August. Scott Taylor joins me on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's a former soldier, founder, and publisher of Esprit de Corps, the Canadian military magazine, founded that in 1988. And Mr. Taylor's column in the Halifax Chronicle Herald was headlined, Vice Admiral Norman continues to be unfairly scapegoated. Scott, thank you for the time. And right away in, the, in your piece, which is just, I thought it was marvelous, just so well written and, and provides us with the background information that's easy and necessary to understand. What's the connection between Jody Wilson-Raybould and Admiral Mark Norman between their cases? Well, as you, I mean, your intro uh, outlines, I mean, it's, it's, you have to follow the bouncing ball pretty closely. And it's, this has been going on for some time now. I mean, this initial 
allegation that there was a leak or a breach of trust it took place in, uh, I mean, just around the time of the election in 2015. So it's been going on. So people, I mean, do hear about it. It flares up occasionally, but it is a very complex case. But it does include, of course, a couple of the same key witnesses that we were seeing with uh, in the Attorney General Judy Wilson-Raybould uh, case. Uh, in that it leads us directly back to Prime Minister Trudeau's office. That's his principal secretary, Gerald Butson, uh, Chief Clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Vernick, uh, who both may be called in front of Admiral Norman's very capable lawyer to uh, to ask or to testify as to why they've been so slow in turning over some key documents in this case. Now, what's the story of the actual conversion of the commercial ship to a Navy supply ship? What's the story behind that? Well, this is where, I mean, the minute you start to put some context into this whole thing, I mean, you can forget about who said what to who, when, I mean, and if there was a, a leak. The, the truth of the matter is that uh, Davy Shipyard did find out that there was some political pressure being applied. Um, Irving has denied they were the ones behind the political pressure, but certainly Scott Bryson from Treasury Board did bring it up with his cabinet colleagues that they should take another look at a possible option from Irving instead of going with Davy. This is a $700 million contract, which had been uh, agreed to by the Harper government, and it was to convert because of the urgency that the Navy needed uh, or a supply ships in order to mount sustained operations. We were, for a brief period, actually leasing that capability from the Chilean and the Spanish Navy. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking for me as a, as a proud Canadian and as a I mean, supporter of the Canadian Forces to know that we were having to, to purchase such uh, services from, from other navies who had obviously had planned ahead and had some redundancy. Anyway, that, that being said, the whole concept of this uh, idea that a, a private company would convert a ship and then lease it, um, the ship is now owned by Federal Fleet and it's leased um, to the, the Royal Canadian Navy on an interim basis, and it has been a tremendous success. They got the thing in on budget, on time, and it's now completed, I think, 15 months of, of yeoman service for the Royal Canadian Navy, which has allowed them to conduct major operations. So at the end of the day, when you, if, whether you find Mark Norman guilty or whatever, this, whatever transpires, when you bring in your you know, witness impact statement, the fact is that whatever happened turned out to be a, a massive positive for the Royal Canadian Navy. It's hard to show that there was any damage done to Canada or to the Royal Canadian Navy as a result of this information being made public, which in turn led to the contract being um, seen through to, to a very successful completion. So that's the whole thing where it's, it's, it didn't turn out to be a fiasco, and you know, it's, uh, as a result, we've lost tens of millions of dollars, and then the Navy has suffered accordingly. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They've, they've been able to succeed in this project. So even if they can prove that there was a breach of trust at that level or from someone else, then the fact is whoever did it um, should probably be getting the Order of Canada as opposed to being uh, slapped with a fine or a jail sentence. So we had a deal, we had a contract to convert this, this commercial ship into a supply ship, which the Navy really desperately needed. Otherwise, they were just a coastal patrol organization because they couldn't go out into deep water and conduct uh, they couldn't major... conduct sustained operations yeah. on the outer coast, yeah. Yeah, they, they just had to stay, we would have had to stay within reach of a harbor, of a Canadian harbor, uh, without <laughs> the supply ship. Or, or beg, borrow, or steal from, or beg, we borrow, or steal, from yeah. other navies, and then we were yeah. leasing the stuff, from, as I said, from the Spanish and the Chileans. And this is something which uh, Admiral Norman, at the, at the initial period of this, he was the commander of the Navy, and then he went on to become the vice chief of defense staff, uh, which again is involved in procurement, so he was did have his finger on the pulse. But the amount of time that it took, um, and it was again, it was already proceeding, because uh, when Davy found out that this was going to happen, there was political pressure on the deal, they had a, I think it was a $27 million cancellation clause. They had just started to cut steel on the ship, uh, the, the Asterix is the name of the ship. They had brought it in and they were cutting it apart. 
and it was a win-win for them. If if this thing did fall through and that they failed to sign the contract, they were going to pocket $27 million for, for basically having done, done nothing. So they were... Uh, and that cancellation cost was a reminder was made public, um, and it would, would have been seen as sort of political suicide. But one of the first things the Liberal government to do is to come in and once again delay this initiative to get supply ships and to take a $27 million hit. Um, so cooler heads prevailed. The deal went forward. And whether or not Irving ever did exert pressure, that, that, that disappeared. But we have seen the resignation of Scott Bryson, uh, who was the man that they say did bring it up. And, and so... It's taken its its time, but I mean, in that interim, it's only been a success story. So I don't know what they're going to going to eventually prove. But it is also, I should say, I mean, this the inner workings of all this have pointed out to, to a culture inside National Defense Headquarters, which is very ominous. Because when when one of the witnesses that had been at the pretrial came forward, they said that when they went to look for documents pertaining to the firing of, of Admiral Norman, um, they were glibly told by a senior officer. You won't find any because this is not our first rodeo. I don't know if you remember that that part of it. They had actually assigned code names to Admiral Norman. One of them was Kraken. One of them was C-34. Um, there was another one about the some other admiral. Anyway, they had everything but his own actual name. So if you were looking for these things under access to information, you wouldn't find it, which means that there was a, an actual calculated cover-up uh, initiated before they even started this this procedure. So, and and that witness when they came forward asked to remain anonymous because they were afraid of reprisals. So, that little bit of insight shows that there's still some shenanigans going on at the very senior levels of National Defense Headquarters. Which, if you're involved in something like this, and you don't want a name attached to it or your name attached to it, then it's it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. But. Uh, by all accounts, I mean, I, I know Admiral Norman. I, I would consider him a friend. I'll be honest with full disclosure. Um, but from the people who serve with him, I mean, they see him as an upstanding officer. He's got a lot of support um, in and out of uniform. The guys are retired. The guys are still serving. Yeah. Scott, let me just get to a couple of things, maybe put them together as a sort of a bundled question here. What's the backgrounder on the charge against the Admiral? And there was a time where they, at least for a few days, where they let Canadians wonder just what the heck the Admiral was being considered guilty of, which I thought was extremely unfair. And then there's that leaked letter from the Justice Department, which you write about in your piece, which declared the admiral essentially guilty before he's even charged. So again, yeah, I think we mentioned this earlier, I mean, this thing goes on over quite a period of time. They they initially um, called in the RCMP to investigate with the Privy Council Office sometime in 2015, and so he was under investigation, under scrutiny until January 13th of 2017, which is when they announced that he was being removed from command, um, didn't tell people why, for 10 days. And the same day that he was removed, I remember this, there was a Toronto Star story saying that the, the Chief of Defence Staff was now um, was going to have zero tolerance for sexual misconduct. Um, and you could not help but put the two and two together. It was like the story comes out and then he's removed to command. The Vice Chief of Defence Staff, I mean, it's completely unprecedented. And people were, I mean, with a vacuum to fill, you know what the news media is like. I mean, as long as they didn't say anything, they wouldn't tell you what the charges were, were about or what, what the suspicion was. So people were speculating that it was to do with international espionage, that it was, you know, it's obviously to do something with sexual misconduct, which, I mean, must have just ripped apart. I mean, the man is as noble as Mr. Admiral Norman is. Um, and then finally, they realized that this is not, not fair to the man, and then they, they let it be known that it was to, to do with a commercial contract. And it was still a full a full year, uh, it was until March, I think it was March 9th, 2018, when he was charged with one count of a breach of trust. 
and that would be for having you know shared cabinet confidence information with a colleague at uh, at Davy Shipyard. Now, of course, the defense has argued that other people have leaked that information, and it wasn't necessarily the admiral that that did this. Um, But then, I mean, again, so in between when he was removed from command, uh, he requested legal aid uh, funding for his case, and it was denied. I mean, in a letter from the Justice Department that was subsequently leaked to my colleague at the Ottawa Citizen, David Puglesi, and in which it said that the reason he can't get the funding is because he's guilty of having leaked information. Which now this is before he's charged. Months, months before he's even charged, the Justice Department's telling him he can't get assistance for his legal funds. And I mean, people wouldn't. I mean, necessarily understand the perspective. But in the past, I think three years, there's been 25 requests by military personnel for for such assistance with their legal fees, and between, uh, there's two others in Mark, Mark Norman have been denied, but 22 were accepted. So he's definitely the exception rather than the rule. And in this case, it just seems. Uh, Almost to be uh, to be petty. And okay, is, we have. And he's, he's suspended with pay, mm-hmm. and and they do make a fair a fair salary. But there's no way you can um, pay the legal fees that, that for what he's paying now, and and not be heading towards bankruptcy. And there is a, yeah. a crowdfunding or whatever they call it. Uh, the, uh, people are sending in money to help him with his legal bills. And that's a lot of them serving in ex personnel. Now uh, they're also dragging their feet. We have about two minutes here. They're dragging their feet on providing the Admiral's correspondence to his legal team, and Marie Hannon has issued an ultimatum. Provide the documentation that she requires, or Butts and Wernick will be called to testify in open court. And that's when I think if that does happen, then you're going to see people begin to make much more of a connection between what's happening with the, with the uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould case, um, which has certainly shook the, the Trudeau administration. And this, this being an election year, I think that's what people are looking at, that the Mark Norman case has the potential to be very damaging, given that it's supposed to go to full trial sometime in August. So, um, I mean, he's got a lot of supporters of just the way in which he was, he was suspended. And then um, he's unlike... Jody Wilson-Raybould, there's not a, a committee that he can just appear in front of and give his side of it. He has to wait for this thing to run its full ponderous course through the judicial system, which he's been, been doing. Um, whether he'll ever see his uniform back on uh, and, a, and a position back in, I don't know. Um, but it's certainly, uh, it's already tarnished, a, uh, from okay. all, all accounts, a very respectable, fine officer. And again, I can't stress enough the fact that the uh, decision that was made to, to proceed with this particular project has right. ended up being a very successful uh, conclusion. Scott, thank you so much for the time. Great story. Great piece that you wrote. Thank you. We'll keep on. Take care. Scott Taylor. Admiral Mark Norman. Remember, this is the number two man in the Canadian military. And they declare him guilty. The Department of Justice, in a letter, declares he's guilty before he's even charged. Months before he's charged. There is a GoFundMe effort uh, for Admiral Mark Norman. And uh, I imagine he certainly can use the, the help, any help. We're going to step aside from the political issues and the political questions in Ottawa for a bit because of something I read on Twitter. And uh, what I read was this tweet. And my oldest is a brilliant student, but also great with his hands. Try as I may to tell him trades are a great way to maintain great quality of life. It's like I'm talking to a wall. Is the school system still teaching this or looking down on tradespeople? And that was directed toward our good friend, member of our Beauties and the Beast panel, Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca and the former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. 
And Catherine replied, and we'll, t- we'll get to her reply in just a second. So I was thinking about that, and I thought, why don't I contact Professor Ken Coates, who's been on this show, uh, speaking about this issue that is sometimes splits Canadian families right down the middle at this time of year. As another high school graduating leaving class faces the question, is it university or is it trades? Professor Ken Coates is the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the uh, Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. He's the co-author of What to Consider if You're Considering University, New Rules for Education and Employment. Catherine, thanks for taking the time, as always. No, thank you, Roy. Always a pleasure. And Ken, good to talk to you. That's great to be with you both. So, uh, Catherine, let's take uh, take us to that tweet, that exchange of, of tweets with this this gentleman who, <laughs> who lamented that his son is brilliant, great with his hands, but boy, if he brings up the trades as a as an option for his son's future, the wall goes up. Yeah, well, I mean, mind you, parents bringing often anything up with their kids, a wall goes up at certain ages. But yeah, I had my younger son actually. Again, was he was a good student, and strangely enough, he had a great talent in creative writing of all things. He won all kinds of awards at school, and that. But he was also very good with his hands. He had a real natural, you know, rich of a little kid had a real natural knack for it, and and he ended up. I think I sort of, you know, do something after high school, and he chose to do. He chose to study construction engineering. And I can, and he's happy as a clam in it. This is years long. This is almost ten years later now. Um, and what struck me, it was interesting, is I remember going to his, you know, his graduation ceremonies and and chatting with some of the other kids in the class at that point. Every single one of them had a good job. <laughs> and this was, you know, this was ten years ago when you know the economy wasn't. I mean, the economy now is pretty good with jobs, but again, it, it's not necessarily the jobs you you want sometimes. But um, I was delighted personally as a parent. Um, that he chose something eminently practical. He will always be in demand. His skills will always be in demand. And, yeah, as a, as a parent, I sure didn't discourage it, I can tell you. But that being said, and again, I remember my experiences at CFIB and dealing with the education system and small business members coming and saying, oh, we need, we need those people so badly. We need this specialty. We need, and we can't find them. And, and then the schools themselves were actually getting rid of those. I'm talking about high school level. Just right. Getting rid of those programs. Okay. So it, you know, there's a big mismatch here. Ken, I looked at some notes uh, from our last conversation about this issue, and uh, this came up as a question that I asked you at the time. Are too many university students spending years obtaining degrees, which alone will be virtually useless in creating and supporting a growing and successful career? So maybe we start there again with your perspective. Well, sadly, I think that's true. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a university degree if you're there for an education and you're taking the time to sort of focus on personal development. Um, but things have to be, people have to be connected up with the workforce. And even, you know, relatively young age is not a bad thing for students to be thinking about what they want to do when they grow up. And parents are actually anxious about it. If you want to terrify parents, tell them that the average age of kids leaving home in Canada is 27 years, which is not what people were expecting. They thought they'd be leaving after 18. Um, and we have to be realistic about this. The economy is changing. It's changing very rapidly. Um, we are, we've overemphasized university education, which is a wonderful thing for a lot of kids. Um, we have a very high dropout rate in the university system, which shows you kids are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, 
And we have to do much better at making sure young people have a sense of what the market's for, what the market's like, and what the job opportunities are. And I'm a huge fan of the trades, a huge fan of apprenticeship programs. They're wonderful ways of preparing young people for terrific and financially rewarding lives that gives all sorts of creative opportunities for them. Um, and we just don't do enough. You know, we've taken the trades out of a lot of high schools. Um, our politicians and our public leaders talk way too much about university without mentioning polytechnics, without mentioning community colleges. The business community um, clearly desperate to get um, uh, skilled tradespeople uh, in, in selected areas and selected sort of fields, and they're not they're not getting the, the follow-up that we need. So we really have to do something different and have to do it better. When 17-year-olds, I'm talking about the high school graduates now, when 17-year-olds are making decisions about what to do with the rest of their lives, they follow the swarm. It's what we, we, we spoke about last time, as I recall. It was like a, a six-year-old's playing soccer. The swarm follows the ball. <laughs> Wherever the ball goes, that's where the swarm goes. So this, the 17-year-old high school graduates are, the, are that swarm when it comes to university or the herd. And so they go into education. They swarm to law. They swarm to medicine. Even when they're told there's only a 5% chance of success. Well, that's, that's what I found so fascinating because my daughter's 18 and we spent a lot of time with her friends here in Saskatchewan. And what's really interesting is they, they actually have this idea that university is a default. Um, they can't figure out what they want to do, so we'll just go to university for a while. Well, you can't succeed at university if you take that attitude. You really actually have to be determined and committed to it and interested in studying. And and what happens is, well, you know, I'm 18, don't know what I want to do. I'll just hang out at university for a while, which is really the wrong way to go. And and in a, watching my daughter go through the high school system and listening to what counselors are telling them about, they really underemphasize the trades and the skilled areas almost to the, to the great detriment of young people and the economy as a whole. So the gap continues to grow. The frustration continues. The employers are upset. Uh, governments are now getting upset. The federal government in the last budget has talked about skills and training and all that sort of thing. And then they put a whole bunch of money into universities, too. You know, universities are well-funded in this country, and, and I think we really do need a skills agenda. And We need to sort of not making it sound like it's really up to 17-year-olds. 17-year-olds are 17. They make bad decisions. You know, they're not really well-formed. They're not getting good advice. Uh, we really have to work harder. So maybe we can sort of put this all together, Catherine, and if under this heading, if your son were asked, did you do the right thing? Did you make the right decision? Have you? Do you have any regrets? How would he approach that? Oh, he'd say definitely not. No, no, he's and he's still young. He's not even thirty yet. But um, but he's done very well. He's he loves it still. And and the nice thing too, and I guess I mean I always said to my kids when they you know they said when they say what should I do, mommy, you know, and whatnot with school. I said, well, number one, find something you love. I mean that's an old corny cliche, but it's still true. And uh, number two was always don't be financially dependent on your mother. That was one of the other considerations. And number three, I said just make sure it's legal. So thankfully both of my sons did follow through on those various pieces of advice. But, you know, it's interesting. Before the break there, Professor Coates mentioned something about the money in the budget for training. That is a stupid, stupid waste of taxpayer dollars. That has no linkage. It's basically you can get training for anything. Uh, basket weaving, an interpretive dance, perhaps. Um, it, you know, it, it, it is not a sensible use of tax dollars for training. It has no linkage to shortages in the labor market. doesn't involve employers because a good 
way for a young person in a community to at least sort of get some ideas. I mean, first of all, you have to be, you should hopefully have a talent for whatever it is you choose. But um, you should go around to employers in the area and say, what are you looking for? Get a handle of what the market out there is, is demanding. And there are also databases that can give you information along those lines. Because I, I, you can't, sadly, you can't trust the education system. I, I'm sorry, but most guidance counselors do not give good advice to students. And they have, you know, they don't have the resources within the school system. But there is information outside of it that kids can access and hopefully involve, you know, their family okay, so, as well. So here's a question then. Where does self-esteem fit into all of this? The, the self-esteem question, uh, Ken, who, whose responsibility is it to fix that particular problem? Because uh, I've heard this a thousand times. You can't damage a young person's self-esteem. You can't do this. You can't do that. You mustn't have, allow them to keep score because if they lost, they'll damage their self-esteem. So self-esteem becomes the issue, I think, for many when it comes to the choice of trades or university. Your self-esteem is rescued if you go to a university and it's compromised. If you take a, you know, a tra- if you learn a trade skill, even though that's where your, your aptitude may lie. Well, that's a really interesting, interesting question, and I'm always very, very concerned that we're sort of putting way too many eggs in that particular basket. Um, uh, life is kind of challenging, and people succeed by taking on difficult things, by failing, by picking themselves off the floor and going forward. These standard arguments in North American universities about what they call snowflakes, the fact that we're protecting our students too much and not giving them a, a chance to sort of succeed or fail, and we're afraid to fail them because that'll hurt their, their, their self-worth and all that kind of stuff. Um, life is challenging, and you actually will get ahead if you actually struggle and, and, and persist, and that's how you will do better. And so right now our school system is afraid to sort of let people fail. Uh, we have way too many students who come through the school system being told they're just fine, they get to university or college and they crash and burn because, in fact, they weren't fine. They weren't keeping up with the material and they weren't very well prepared. Um, and, and I think, you know, quite frankly, a lot of parents uh, contribute to that. We're, we're, we're overindulgent. We actually go out of our way to sort of make things easy. Uh, now, with the, now they call them snowplow parents or, uh, or lawnmower parents, you know, clearing the way for their kids to make life easier for them instead of letting them go out there and make their kind of their own decisions. Um, you know, you're not going to get young adults who are successful and making good choices if you make all the decisions for them or if you interfere with the school system or intercede with the college to get them into a program. We have to trust, we have to train young people to look after themselves and, and to explore the world out there. I'm very frustrated by the lack of attention to a lot of the trades and the comment that Catherine made about going out and talking to businesses and finding out where the job markets are. I've got lots of friends who have their kids do exactly that and they come back you know, really excited because the, the employers are, are thrilled to have a young person show up and say, I'm interested in being a machinist, I'm interested in being a millwright, I'm interested in being a heavy equipment operator. And they get excited about students who take the initiative and get out there and sort of try to find something. Okay. Exactly. Um, and, uh, exactly true. That's and we have about theory. we have about one minute left, Catherine. What do you want to add to that? No, I, well, I, I I couldn't agree more. But you know, you mentioned self-esteem, Roy, and I'm just thinking: if you're 30 years old in your parents' basement with none of your own money, I don't think you're going to have a whole heck not of a lot. self-esteem. Not a lot. And you know, not preparing kids for the real world, whether it's we as parents' education system, that's a sure killer of self-esteem. You know, I heard somebody say not long ago that the young people want to have children. There's all this lamenting that there aren't no kids are being born or not enough children are being born. I heard. Some Someone say that one of the problems is that far too many young adults are living in their parents' basements. They're economically uh, out of the picture because they have student loans they have to deal with and other issues financially. So there's no way are they ready to even start a family. They want to, but they can't. 
Well, uh, but and yet there's a demand for jobs. That, there, there's a demand for employees out I know, there. I, I know. Mean, that does not compute. We all had student loans. I had student loans. We managed to pay them off. So I really, I really think we need to give our heads a shake. It is. I have, I have two boys that both are successful. One has two kids, uh, and uh, and and they're they're not bazillionaires or anything. You know, it's not that. But they're both successful doing their thing. And I'll tell you, they wouldn't be in my basement now. I would have given them the boot years okay, ago. Okay, mom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Swift, thank you so much. Professor Ken Coach, thank you. Really great talking to you both. You too. Great, thanks so much. And uh, and and the book again. Uh, that Professor Coates wrote is uh, what to consider when you're considering university. What to consider when you're considering university. Um, New rules for education and employment. I wonder how Justin Trudeau is. I was thinking about that last night. I thought, you know, I wonder if the Prime Minister's sleeping well these days or these nights. Given what's going on, we haven't seen him take any selfies with anybody. There's been a, a, a dearth of those sunny smiles and uh, happy-looking selfies. And, yeah, well, we know what's going on. And uh, he's really the architect of his own misery when you just fundamentally think about what's going on. We just heard uh, Andrew Shear, who was on the program yesterday with us, the Conservative Party leader. When he said... It was just last week that Michael Wernick resigned, and it seems like so long ago. Well, it does. It seems like forever since the clerk of the Privy Council decided to pack it in. It, and, and never mind Gerald Butts. That seems like a, a year ago to me anyway. There are just so many things going on. And in this past week, we've had the uh, Selena uh, Cesar Chavan move from the Liberal Caucus to sitting as an independent after she accused the prime minister of being loud with her and um, sort of noxious when she told him she wasn't going to run again in October and telling her, think of everything I've done for you. You're ungrateful. Of course, the PMO pushes back and says that never happened. We know that the PMO always tells the truth. Um, And then you had, uh, let's just go through this. The budget came down, and the conservatives kind of made it a little interesting to hear what the budget was about. And But then what really, uh, you know, the, the grenade that rolled under the door was Jane Philpott's interview with Paul Wells of McLean's magazine, where she said, as on budget day, there's much more that needs to be revealed about this entire SNR situation. And then out comes the, uh, the CEO of... Um, of uh, SNC-Lavalin, and he says, 9,000 jobs? No, we never raised that with the, uh, with the federal government as rationale for our looking for a remediation agreement. Uh, no, no, we, uh, that, was never, uh, that was never part of it. Neil Bruce said, well, these are talented people. If we can't bid for contracts, they'll go work for somebody who can. And yet, there was Mr. Trudeau, day after day after day, and all of his obedient messengers talking about the 9,000 jobs they were going to save. And along comes this really, I think this was the most difficult moment for Trudeau. When Neil Bruce said, no, it's never about 9,000 jobs. No. Then, of course, Jody Wilson-Raybould sends a letter to Anthony Housefather, the chair of the Justice Committee in Parliament, and uh, let him know that she's going, since they won't let her appear again, 
before the Justice Committee. She's going to send a letter to the committee in which she substantiates, she includes, will include texts and emails to substantiate what she testified before the parliamentary committee a month ago. You think this, this is over? This is nowhere near over. There are so many more parts of the story that are yet to come. And remember, there's a fellow by the name of Joshua Boyle who's facing 19 criminal charges. Mr. Boyle found himself, for some reason, with his family and the PMO, with the prime minister bouncing Boyle's little kids on, on his lap. Well, Mr. Boyle was married previously to Zainab Khadr, Omar Khadr's sister. And what makes this particular story still intriguing to me is that Boyle told media that he and Trudeau had met in 2006, and I'm paraphrasing here, but over matters of mutual interest. What's that all about? There are so many, many questions. I know I'm leaving something out. I know I'm leaving something out. Dan McTagg is a former liberal member of parliament, 18 years, a liberal MP, and uh, he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Corliss Radio Network. We've talked to Dan, of course, many, many times over the year. Michelle Simpson, also former liberal member of parliament, seatmate to Justin Trudeau when they both occupied uh, seats in Canada's parliament. And uh, Michelle is, uh, she is, well, she's one of the beauties in the Beauties and the Beast segment that we have in irregularly on this show now. So welcome to you both. Good to be here, Roy. Thank you, Roy. Did I leave anything out? That I'm not part of the beauty contest? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that goes without saying. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Just had to put it in there. <laughs> no, that's right. Did I, did, I, did I miss anything in this whole equation? Because that's a whole... That's a, and then, of course, Admiral Mark Norman, that's yet to come. But th- this... Ha- look, have you ever seen... Let me start with you, Dan. You're the, you, got into, you, you were elected to office in 1993. That was your first election victory. Uh, have you ever seen anything? And you lived through the sponsorship. You lived through the uh, through the Crutchham Martin battles in that Liberal Party. Have you ever seen anything like this? No, never. And it's really captured, uh, and is the only thing I think that Canadians are talking about. Much to the chagrin of many uh, Liberals who uh, thought at the beginning this thing would simply blow over. And I do still speak to the few Liberals that are left that uh, still haven't made up their minds as to whether they're going to continue to. Uh, represent the Liberal Party, whether they're going to pack up like so many have done to this point and uh, and move on. But no, it's uh, and the, it, it's just a train wreck in slow motion, and it continues to uh, you know pop up with different angles and aspects of this that I I think most of us would never have imagined possible. I did think though that uh, when the Globe and Mail ran a story, and it was uh, both Stephen Chase and uh, Bob Fife. When they run a story, because uh, I know that they do a lot of work, the two of them together, and have in the past, but if they're going to go after something, you have to be pretty convinced, and you have to be certain uh, that if they have something, there's no way this is going to be a uh, you know a flash in the pan and a, uh, you know, a tempest in a teapot. Uh, this turns out to be probably the biggest scandal of our of our generation, and certainly the time in which it's taken um, and, and the, uh, the, the victims, uh, the casualties has been far greater than anything I certainly have seen in my time as a, as a member of parliament, probably my time on earth. Uh, I, the ad scam was nothing compared to this. And we all, always had a sense as caucus members, and I think Michelle will back me up on this, that 
this was to do with uh, folks uh, a little lower down on the on the rung who may have had access to money or to uh, sponsorship money, but it wasn't uh, affecting or being dealt with or uh, you know would not be something that would bring into question the integrity of the uh, MPs that were uh, that were responsible or at least sitting in the House of Commons. And it turned out to be just that case. That's not to excuse it, but. This thing is, uh, is is significantly greater than that, um, and I, I suspect that it's uh, we the other several shoes have yet to drop. And then we also have the OECD investigating, uh, taking a hard look yeah. at, uh, at at bribery issues and and their standards. Uh, and if the OECD uh, comes down hard on the Liberal government, I mean, there's not there's no legal ramification there, but it certainly will be a. Uh, be a moral condemnation. Michelle, uh, as you sat in, in Parliament, Canada's Parliament, if you were part of that uh, of that scene still, if you were still sitting in Parliament, never mind which party, if you were still sitting in Parliament, would you be? how would you be absorbing what's going on around you? Well, to tell you the truth, I wouldn't want to run again as a Liberal. I don't know... Uh, how the MP from Whitby is going to make out as an independent. But to a certain degree, the ones that still want to run, like I think Jane Philpott, she's going to rerun. And uh, Jody wants to rerun. She said she will. Yeah. That unless you maintain some civility with the Prime Minister. Uh, as Dan knows, the hammer they have is they won't sign your papers to run. Yeah, but you know what? He can't do that. If if Justin Trudeau could do that, he would have done it already. I, I really believe that jo- Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott are burrs under his saddle that he does not want. This is irritating him day after day after day. They are They're causing... Him, he sees this as a personal attack, and I don't think he he handles those sorts of situations well. Michelle, I think he would, if he could remove them from caucus, he would, but he can't afford it. No, but he could certainly. There's still time not to sign the papers. Yeah, would you agree, Dan? Well, these are hand chosen people. These are his own people that he pushed aside many others to to bring in. The mere fact that you are starting starting to see. Not just the individuals who are handpicked, who are highly talented, have great reputations, now pushing back and uh, saying there is something significantly wrong. And you have the usual suspects coming out uh, who have, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe trying to cling to the vestige of their previous past as members of parliament, uh, Marlene Jennings, uh, uh, Sheila Copps. Very surprised at those two, by the way. And I, I think that, uh, like myself and uh, Michelle, we, we comment on this, but we certainly don't try to make the point of, you know, you should be kicked out of caucus for what you're doing. That's the kind of nonsense that led to the revolts that we saw in the Liberal Party when we had a previous leader who used to go around frequently say, if I don't like the color of your eyes, I'm not going to sign your nomination papers. You do that, yeah. and you, you, you automatically undermine the very fiber of a Liberal Party. And i got to tell you, Roy and Michelle, because we saw this, um, to have, as we saw in the past, and I raised this before, Katie Telford, uh, and uh, the Principal Secretary, Gerald Butt, sitting in caucus taking notes is beyond the pale. You can't have a circumstance where members of Parliament can free, feel free to come together behind closed doors and uh, and give it to the PM and tell them what the problem is. Okay, let me, let me take a break here. 
Dan, you were talking about uh, the the attendance of caucus meetings by Gerald Butts and uh, and and Katie Telford. What's up with that? Well, it, it's a break of tradition within the Liberal Party. Our caucus was always able to, unless invited, uh, was always able to discuss things openly. Uh, if you took a position, want to talk about a position, want to talk about the weekly agenda ahead, that was the place to do it. And it didn't get discussed or divulged outside. But it was an opportunity for us as caucus members, as members of either the Senate or elected members, to get together and to have a, a weekly powwow, if you will, to get together and to uh, hash out where we were going and the concerns that we had. That was a great place to do it. And there was never any recriminations, uh, unless, of course, you'd done something publicly. But uh, the reality was... Uh, with this change, the signal change, it means that uh, members of parliament were truly fifty. You know, uh, nobody's. 50 so what? So what was? What, what were Butts and Telfer doing? Taking notes, telling, uh, disciplining. I've talked to two MPs who said, you know, if they took a position at the mic saying this is a, like, for instance, uh, this is the wrong position to take. We shouldn't be spending money in 2017, 2016 when the economy is strong. We should be saving up and ensuring that we put money aside for when we truly need it. Don't incur big deficits. Uh, these kind of things uh, made sure that the two MPs who were concerned about this never uh, never really went anywhere in terms of the party because what they were saying was truthful and it's something that yeah. we as former liberals would have certainly supported. So, so Michelle, what are, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Was, so, so you have so if I understand it, Mr. Butts and Ms. Telford would 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 would, would critique and criticize MPs who spoke their minds in caucus meetings. Well, yeah, he, they basically took notes to use at some future date. They weren't elected to anything. Well, they also knew Trudeau. Exactly, exactly, exactly. There was a reason that they were there, Mm -hmm. and that, to my way of thinking, and I'm sure Dan, was uh, to, um, for some sort of recrimination for speaking your mind. And the other factor, though, is that Trudeau is perceived uh, and his handlers would perceive him as weak and not able to stand up to several members of parliament. So they would serve as a bit of a buffer, if you will. As we know, uh, Trudeau is not the same without without, uh, Butts being there. Well, he certainly he cannot he cannot stand up to Jody Wilson Raybould. We were seeing that clearly, and and Ditto Jane uh, Philpot, and as you pointed out, Dan, they were his uh, personal choices for uh, to run and yeah. to be in cabinet. It's got to tell you that if your own people, the most loyal people you have, uh, have a problem with you, then I think Canadians should start to pay attention. All right, it does so, concern me. Thirty-one percent out there sim- simply think this is no it, big deal. In, in the in the one minute or so we have left, is there? Is, is there is the possibility exist that there's a move afoot within the Liberal Party of Canada to persuade Mr. Trudeau to step down before October? I think there would be, but the fact is that they only won because of his name. They're really ba- banking on something that happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So, you know, losing the Trudeau name means the power and the strength of the Liberal Party, the bench strength, is very weak, but it's, uh, you know, uh, a, a, an inch wide and a mile deep, uh, or vice versa. Uh, depending on how you look at it, without the Trudeau name there, there's a, there probably would won the last election. Michelle, would the, would the name Wilson Raybould uh, carry a lot of weight with voters at this time? Well, She's from the West Coast, which isn't a bad thing. And, I'm not trying uh, to start something here. I'm just asking her question. No, no, I, I don't. I don't believe that there is anything afoot. Okay. Because.
because there's still some cachet to right. the Trudeau name. Thank you both. Um, and Dan, in 10 seconds, you think there's more to come as far as resignations or oh, walking absolutely. is concerned? Yeah, Michelle, I'll say the same thing. This is the eye of the storm. We okay. haven't gone to the worst yet. All right. Thank you both very much yeah. for joining us. Yeah, you're right. Bye, Michelle. Dan McTagg, Michelle Simpson uh, on The Roy Green Show. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.